I had asked Kathleen to start this episode because I have a complex about starting episodes after I was told by a friend that I didn't have a radio voice like Kathleen did. But Kathleen has been paralysed with self-doubt for the last four minutes, unable to start the episode. Um, so what are we going to say? Hello, everybody. Hello, boys and girls. Oh, God, no. Ladies and gents. Right, we need to talk about Don't Worry Darling. Let's face it, don't know if you guys have been following all the drama of the film that is directed by Olivia Wilde with Harry Styles and Florence Pugh in it. It is out in cinemas tomorrow and there has been so much tabloid fodder, so much gossip. We have both been following it quite fervently, haven't we? No, we've been, I was on holiday and we've just been WhatsApping each other all week and all my friends on holiday were also being like, oh my God, what is this drama? So it's actually our public duty to share with you guys. For those that may have followed it or for those that are just hearing about it for the first time, you're going to love this. It is pretty juicy. It is so juicy. I don't think I've ever read this much feuding between um, modern co-stars on set. I know. It's like at Telegraph, we always do these like, like screen secrets pieces of like massive feuds that happened in like the 60s or whatever but that doesn't happen now didn't you mention to me like before off air that there was some kind of drums with 50 shades of gray which i didn't know about yes so i read this funny gawker piece the other day about how like 50 shades of gray the press tour for 50 shades of gray was even worse than the press tour for don't worry darling because dakota johnson and jamie dornan allegedly hate each other and were so embarrassed with the film they kept telling people not to watch it (gasps) oh they knew it was shit before it even came out basically right Back to Don't Don't Worry Darling. Well, should we, do you want to say what the film's about? Yes. So it is like a sci-fi thriller that is set in like a perfect 50s town. Um, We were saying it's got kind of Stepford Wives vibes. Um, And all is not as it seems Mm. in this like perfect suburban place. Yeah. So basically in this perfect utopia, all the women, every morning they wave their husbands off as their husbands go and work on this like kind of secretive project that they don't know anything about. It's like the victory project. The victory project. Exactly. Um, and then all day they go and do dance classes together. Then they go and cook and clean. They wait for their husband at the door with a cocktail, make a mistake, have perfect sex, go to bed. And like every day is kind of like Groundhog Day. It's a bit like the Truman Show as well. Mm. In like you see their like perfect clockwork day happening every day. Anyway, and then I think something happens. Um, one of the women just something doesn't add up. And then they start talking about it. And then cracks begin to form in this perfect utopia and all the women are starting to get suspicious. And it all unravels. And that's where it all unravels, yeah. And Chris Pine is clearly like some kind of head of the men or something, isn't he? He's the like evil head honcho, yeah. Kind of like Christopher Walken in yes. Stepford Wives. So the drama basically all started earlier this year when Olivia Wilde, the director, um, who is an actress, you probably would recognise her from... The OC? Yeah. Um, and she's in quite a few like comedy films. Anyway, her ex-husband, Jake, Jason Sudeikis. Am I saying I that right? So. Yes, Sudeikis, who's like Sudeikis, so yeah, that comedy um, actor. Basically, she got served with like custody papers to do with their children um, just before the first clips were about to be shown and she was like on stage. Um, she was very chic about it. She didn't say what it was, what it was or whatever, but that's when the tabloid furore began, basically. It is. I mean, what a move to serve your custody papers on stage. I know. And he has since said that he didn't know that that was going to happen. Like he's tried to claim complete like. Oh, so you essentially like, it's just their duty to just serve it wherever The lawyers like try and serve you wherever they can get you basically. Um, And then the petition that he'd asked for, which was like a joint custody thing has been like thrown out anyway. Cause I didn't know this. Olivia Wilde obviously is American, but she lives in London. 
that's where they raise their kids because obviously Jason Sudeikis is the star of Ted Lasso and that's filmed in Richmond. So she moved to England like a year ago so that they could do their shared custody. And do you think that's how she met Harry Styles who lives in North London? Well, they met on the set of Don't Worry Darling, didn't they? Oh, is that where they met? Yes, that's where they met, which brings us to the next like part of this wild, wild drama. So Florence Pugh... The first like trouble in paradise, like in terms of like really being on set, was when we saw that Florence Pugh was very much distancing for herself from the film, and apparently there were kind of rumors, sources um, telling things like People magazine, for instance, that Florence was really upset with the way that Olivia Wilde was allegedly bonking Harry Styles on set while still married to Sudeikis. She clearly, had some like moral. If the rumours to be believed had some moral issue with that. What? So they were saying that Florence Pugh didn't like it because it was like um, she wasn't like properly separated from her ex. I think so. Those are the rumours. Oh, see, I didn't know if it was like, oh, they're they're like, you know, their romantic liaison is getting in the way of the like professional atmosphere on the set sort of thing. So also that. Also, there have been rumours that um, Olivia Wilde is quite difficult to work with. But I don't know how much of that is a kind of like loaded anti-feminist. That people like, obviously are going to say that about a female director. Exactly. Yeah. And she's a brilliant director. I mean, if you've watched Booksmart, which is one of my favourite films, I know you didn't like it. But well, I yeah. It. I didn't hate it, as I say. I'm just... Like, it's like a coming-of-age drama about two teenage girls starring Beanie Feldstein. Um, so good. I'll give it another go. I didn't concentrate properly. It was... No, well, you told me, to be fair, it's because you'd watched her in How to Build a Girl first and she yeah. was annoying in, in that. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't, couldn't get the top hat out of my mind. No, she is weird in that. Um, anyway, so apparently there was also some professional tension in that Florence Pugh felt that, apparently, Olivia Wilde was actually distracted from her duties as a director because she was otherwise engaged with Harry Styles. Oh. And there have been recent reports that apparently it got so bad that the director of photography and Florence Pugh were forced to ghost direct. I'm putting my doing inverted commas, on behalf of Olivia Wilde. What, because she was, like, too busy with Harry? Which she has denied. Interesting. Um, I mean, these are all, this is all, like, sources say, sources say. Yeah. But no one's denied it. Ooh. Right? I don't think Florence Pugh has denied any of this. Stuff. No, I feel like she's just been quite quiet about everything, hasn't she? She's, like you say, her, her even um, own, like, promo of the film hasn't been, like, effusive. And Olivia Wilde has, like, tried to say really nice things about Florence Pugh. Like, she's the actor of her generation and she's, like, a joy to work with. And I think Florence just hasn't said anything at all about what it's yes. like working with Olivia Wilde. That's true. And a lot of the... And you would, right? Like, she's Yeah, you a, just work with an amazing female director. You would shout, shout them out and pick them up if it was exactly. a good experience. Exactly. And also, I think... So that's something the, the media did pick up on as well. It's just how absent the promo for Don't Worry Darling was from Florence Pugh's like Instagram mm. and such. Um, then there was some barbed comments between Shia LaBeouf, is that who you say his name? Yeah, Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, yeah so uh, just for context guys, Shia LaBeouf was meant to play Jack, the character that Harry Styles plays originally. He was the person that was cast for it. Uh, however, a few months before all the drama with FKA Twigs came out, which again, if you don't remember, um, FKA Twigs is Shia LaBeouf's former partner and she accused him of like sexual battery and abuse and just all this horrific stuff. Um, which I think she, she 
she, it wasn't just an accusation. She was like suing him, wasn't she? And um, he's been like, it's real and it's material, but it's not the narrative that has been portrayed as kind of thing. And he then went into like an inpatient facility. So then what basically dragged this all up to the surface again last month and linked it to Don't Worry Darling is that Olivia Wilde gave an interview to Variety magazine, which is like the biggest like Hollywood mag in America, um, all about why she fired Shia from the set of Don't Worry Darling. And she said it was because, in her words, he had a combative energy that made her actors feel unsafe on set. So she had to fire him. But then Shia hit back at her in a private email uh, when he read that interview last month. Which he leaked to reporters, didn't he? So he sent her a private yes. email and leaked that alongside video from 2020 exactly. of her around the time that he was allegedly fired. And so the email said, you know the real reason why I left that film was because your actors couldn't find time to rehearse. And then the video show was basically of Olivia Wilde kind of throwing Florence Pugh under the bus. She said in the video... You know, I think this might be a bit of a wake-up call for Miss Flo, and I want to know if you're open to giving this a shot with me and with us. If she really commits, if she really puts her mind and heart into it at this point, dot, dot, dot. Which definitely, like, bolsters what he said, that it's like there was, like, the actors couldn't find the time rather than it being, like, his thing. Or the actors didn't couldn't be didn't bothered. want to find the time to rehearse with him, essentially. And is that because they... Well, I mean, to be honest, I can imagine someone like... Florence Pugh, who's like very woke, very young, all with all the baggage that Shia has. Yeah. Probably just doesn't really want to work with him. Um, and also I have heard as well, but this again, this might just be like quite anti-feminist narrative that has been like lambasted against Olivia Wilde to bring down her status as a rare female director mm. is that she is difficult to work with. I have heard, but I think that's also like classic. People would say that sort of thing. People would say that. And also... Male directors are difficult to work with and maybe also that's kind of fine. Like maybe like being director is fucking hard. I mean, it's kind of like on a on a very larger, more like glamorous scale, that whole idea of like your boss is meant to be annoying. Like your manager is annoying because that's their job. Exactly. So like the director's job is to like be the annoying person that like pulls everyone together and like is difficult about their vision and like is demanding and... Well, I like, read an interview with her actually where she said, and also, by the way, in this interview, she comes across really well, like her and the, in, in the reporter going, like, make pottery together in London. And she seems yeah. really nice. And like, it's constantly texting the like reporter with like what she's doing and extra quotes and seems so friendly and like sends her a picture of her making her pottery and whatever. So I think she is, she does seem really friendly, but there, there is a quote where she says, the number one rule when you're a director is you cannot show fear. The moment actors feel like you don't know what your vision is, mm. it's like chaos. So I think you have got to be pretty like firm, firm, yeah, yeah, and and I guess it's just not a trait you're like usually you would usually see in a woman. No, and it is unfortunate for her really that the whole film is being marred by all this coverage because as soon as it was at Venice Film Festival, you guys probably saw this um, all over social media. There's just been like crazy rumours and drama like Florence Pugh like didn't turn up for like the original first press thing because she her publicist had just said that her flight was coming in later so she'd be joining for the red carpet in the evening but was like never going to be able to make that event but you pointed out didn't you that she'd posted a pic with her gran from that day which would insinuate that she was in fact already in Venice it literally said in the caption I'm here so maybe she is doing a little sly dig to be like Yes. Yes, I am here and I've chosen not to attend the press conference. But then also, like, why would you attend the press conference in which you are the centre of a feud with the female? Like, to be fair, she could just be trying to take the... But you are the lead actress and, like, 
as Olivia Wilde even says in the variety piece, like it's her film, like it's Florence Pugh's film, like it's about her really. And she is like surely contractually obliged with Warner Brothers and all of that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's still quite a big thing to just not turn up. Um, Also more goss that I forgot to weave in is that apparently as well, well, not apparently, what people have inferred from an interview that Florence gave with Harper's magazine yes, is that she was uncomfortable with the um, focus on female pleasure and sex uh, that Olivia Wilde put in the trailer because what is really important for Olivia Wilde is eroticism and and female pleasure, which she says is very limited to queer cinema. Yeah, she says, like, why do we have an issue with, like, like male on female pleasure like why can't we handle women's pleasure when it's like coming from a man Florence Pugh's issue right correct me if I'm wrong but it was it was basically the subtext of what she said was that you know as an actress you don't really want your work to be reduced down to a scene of a man going down on a woman with like this actor who's like the most famous person in the world Harry Styles and we had a quick chat about this off air didn't we where you were reading that as she's saying I'm annoyed that that scene is even like the focus of the trailer whereas I read that as like it's actually a split second moment in the trailer and it's more the public's perception so this film has like all these like deeper messages about misogyny and the patriarchy and everything like that and actually like all anyone's talking about is the fact that Harry Styles like goes down on her yes actually I think you're I've come around to your opinion I think Olivia Wilde's vision is really good, which is we should absolutely focus on female pleasure and a man going down on a woman should not be seen as this, like, taboo scene. Yeah, yeah. But, sadly, Harry Styles fans have fucked that. Yeah. Which I guess is a blessing and a curse, because let's face it, the film is going to do way better in box office having Harry Styles in it. Exactly. I mean, can you imagine if it still had Shire in it? That would have been super unfortunate. They would have had to fire him anyway. I Um, mean, with Shire in it, it would have been indie, it would have been an art house film. Yeah, they wouldn't have been able to... Whereas now it's like going to be a major contender for like told the box office and the box office is not doing well I was like looking at the reports it's like struggling yeah apparently she says in the variety piece that one of her like non-negotiables when she sold this film to um different I want to say production houses but they're called that are they like the big cinema studios and was that it had to be like theatrical like it had to go into theatres and a lot of the other studios that were offering to take the film weren't promising that and it was Warner Brothers that promised it will go in cinemas interesting yeah which is why she went for them even though they were offering less money I mean Um, okay you're someone who doesn't tend to go to cinema no you want to go to cinema to see this I actually do yes and is it because of the drama do you know weirdly enough it's not like before like I must say I'd actually like been living for all the drama before I'd even seen the trailer like I'd automatically thought like yeah 1950s like kind of drama with like Harry Styles like not that interested and actually once I watched the trailer I was like oh my god this is so my thing it is literally a sci-fi thriller and it looks like really juicy and as you say very like the set for wires which is one of my favorite films I didn't so, know that I've never seen it sorry love a bit Nicole Kidman apparently that. Blue Velvet as well it's quite similar however in terms of all the drama around Harry what has been interesting is how um you know much of a controversial figure he is like not just in terms of like is his acting good or not but all the Chris Pine stuff with like the spitting in the lap don't know if you guys all saw this but at the Venice Film Festival there was a clip that was on social media that looked very much like Harry had like spat in Chris Pine's lap like as a joke but you may or may not want to rebuke that do you not? I rebuke it so when I first saw that clip on social I was like oh my god what the fuck like Harry Styles looks like it literally looks so much like that like he's just spatting Chris Pine's lap and also this is added on to the fact that at the press conference that Florence Pugh refused to attend 
Chris Pine is like turned into the most hilarious meme, looking like he wants to kill himself oh, at, really at Harry Styles explaining to the room why he want why he's happy to be in this film. His like must... acting process. And what is also really funny is watching Chris Pine completely zone out and like his eyes are rolling back and into his head uh, when Harry's Harry... trying to be like so sincere about acting. Oh god! So like, as an actor, you should just definitely have like a reason why you want to be an actor, like rehearsed, ready to go. But this is what he says we'll play for you you know my favorite thing about the movie is like it feels like a like a movie it feels like a real like you know you go to the theater movie the movie you, know, you, you kind of the reason why you go to watch something on the big screen that is hilarious why does he say movie chris pine's face as well is literally like at first he's trying to look thoughtful and considered and he's like yeah and then he's like what the fuck i've interviewed chris pine Have and he you? was one of the most charming lovely people was he? so for him to look that disrespectful to harry styles something is a big wrong. deal because yeah. i must say as well with chris pine this is not to be a critical bitch um but i will say i know he was always meant to be that kind of like bastion of typical like male handsomeness no he looks odd he definitely looks odd at the moment has he had work done or what the hell's going on <laughs> he looks very odd like around the eyebrows and like i don't know something's going on with his face he looks different for this film yes can, do any plastic surgeons listen to this and can they let us know what he's had done he looks like a madam two swords yes he, he looks a bit he's been a bit like permanently frightened or something oh that's a good he looks a bit like david beckham now oh well you do think david beckham's had botox don't you well, i feel like you said that when you that. yeah well remember when i uploaded a picture of me and david beckham to my instagram no one thought it was real yeah thought it was <laughs> you went like madam two swords of the wax figure for sake that is actually him <laughs> You're like number one, like claim to British celebrity I fame. Know. Absolutely um, typical. Anyway, so there was a Chris Pine spit. So as I was saying, um, people thought that like considering Chris Pine clearly wanted to throttle Harry Styles during the press conference, maybe um, Harry Styles spitting on him was really the last straw. But I saw the extended clip of the alleged split, which is not being shown on social media, but which is like doing the rounds and kind of like niche social media circles. And in fact, Chris Pine is looking down at his lap in that way because he finds his mislaid sunglasses. Oh. And he goes, oh, there they are. And oh, he that's like so annoying. Because it does look like he's like, what's this in my lap? Like that's the facial expression. They're his sunglasses. Oh my God, that is so... And similarly to that, ridiculous. another video that um, I watched the social media version and had a very different narrative in my head to then watching the full length version... There's a, um, during the screening of Don't Worry Darling at Venice, so after the press conference, which Florence Pugh did go to, she had to go to screening, there's this huge standing ovation for Olivia Wilde and the film. And in the social media truncated clip, we see Florence Pugh allegedly avoiding eye contact with Olivia Wilde and refusing to clap in her direction. And it's fucking awkward. And then in the extended clip, we see Florence Pugh turning around to Olivia Wilde, giving her a massive smile, looking her in the eyes and giving her like a massive round of applause oh. to Olivia Wilde. Yeah, so a lot of it is so like tabloid and social media. Like, and as you said, she bullshit. did promote the film. Yeah, when we went and had a quick look on her Instagram, I'm like, oh, she actually has posted loads about the film and is making it look like she's proud of it. I get that maybe she hasn't done any like adoring posts about like the genius of Olivia, but equally she's definitely not like not promoting the film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, know, I think I think a lot of the media are to blame Blowing for this. Blowing it all up. And probably it is this episode is not helping. No, it's not. Sorry, guys. But it is, <laughs> and it is probably all rooted in a lot of, like, misogyny. Okay, lastly on Don't Worry, Darling, what do we think of 
Harry Styles as an actor because this is quite an important time for Harry Styles' career because not only has Don't Worry Darling come out, which is not his acting debut, he was in Dunkirk, a mute, but well, not not like a (laughs) clinical mute. He he just didn't say anything. That's like one line. (laughs) Um, As a soldier. And, um, but, and as well as Don't Worry Darling, My Policeman is coming out. Or is it The Policeman? I think it's My Policeman which is a drama about a gay... Yes, my policeman. A gay policeman who is married to a woman, played by Emma Corrin, but who has a kind of behind-the-scenes love affair with a fellow gay man. But it's... Because it's the 50s, I think it's, like, just before homosexuality has been partially decriminalised. Yeah, I'm just sorry. I'm trying to check now what the actual um, setting date is, and I can't... Oh, yep, you're right. So... It was only partially, obviously, homosexuality was only partially decriminalised in 1967, so it was well before that. Um, But I had heard bad things, as you did. Haven't seen it, so again, can't comment. Guys, we will give you our official straight-up review of Don't Worry Darling next time. My Policeman comes out in November on Amazon Prime. I did see a naturally very good review in Attitude. Um, where they were like the headline was literally um, like don't listen to the critics Harry Styles is an arresting lead I read uh, a headline in the Daily Beast which said in both Don't Worry Darling and My Policeman Harry Styles is very bad at acting (laughs) (laughs) and then I saw someone another article headline that said about My Policeman um, there needs to be a citizen's arrest warrant for Harry Styles' acting career (laughs) sorry that is just too Which is good. a good headline. The sub-editor should be proud of that one. I mean, I'm really intrigued, that's for sure. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be watching both of both, them. Both, yeah. I mean, let's see. Let's see, let's see. I'm also really nervous about some other um, musicians trying their luck on the big screen. Namely, Dua Lipa in Barbie. <gasps> what? <laughs> Dua Lipa is in Barbie? I mean, Pardon? Dua, if Dua Lipa is as stiff on screen as she is on stage, we are in for a If her acting shocker. is anything like her catwalk walk. <laughs> Which, like, one of my favourite and most loveliest people who I'm not going to name just in case he hears it, but you know, our gorgeous, gorgeous, like, one of our stylist friends. Yes. Um, he was saying that that walk is, like, his worst that he's ever seen on the catwalk in all his years of being in fashion. God, and our friend is kind. Yes, exactly. So. Well, look, I love Jalipa, And actually, she's so an amazing so, performer again, now. Sorry to be a hater. But I'm not sure. No, she's really worked on it. And I like the way that she, like, references, like, those old, like, bad dance moves and stuff. Like, it's actually quite iconic but can you work on acting can you work oh, surely on... you can but can you really like not in like the space of like a month though when you also have like another full-time career yeah but no do you know what though i think performance on like dance and stuff you can work on and you can yeah. be meticulous it's like form but you can't work on your voice really you've either got a voice or you don't yes and it's the same with acting i think you could you're either you've got that spark or you don't you're either convincing or you're not i guess aren't you and so that's what's no you know you can't work on being able to transform into someone else at the click of a finger like most no. successful actors can and it is a very difficult thing when you're already a recognisable face like people bring that like baggage to that character do you know what I mean so to actually play a character and be completely convincing as that person when you're already like a highly recognisable face is risky Rina Sawayama also yes. is going to be in John Wick <gasps> ooh okay I oh have... god John Wick that's the one that they've got like a million of them isn't it yes yeah. I've never seen one but I have full faith that Rina will oh, be oh she'll be amazing she mm. will definitely be amazing you just know that she'll be great and Lady Gaga brilliant <gasps> brilliant so it's just uh, the jury is out on Harry I'm afraid and I do like Harry Styles but 
We'll see. We'll report back, guys. We'll literally report back. I think that part of the issue of working as a journalist in culture is that you are just so influenced by critical opinion. Yes, that is very true. And I just am constantly reading and editing reviews. I can't separate the art. What they think. Yeah. So on to the next. Let's move on. Kathleen, tell me about your recommendation for this week. Ooh, okay. So my recommendation is for a book. So Will Store, for those that don't know, is like a very like leading journalist and writer in the UK. He's published six books and he is also, fun fact, the husband of Forrestor, former editor of Elle, now uh, like one of the top dogs at Substack. Yes, I actually went, uh, yeah, I interviewed her and I went to her Substack drinks last week. And how was that? It was fantastic at Liberia Bookshop. Nice, Um, that's cute. Yeah, she's so glamorous and lovely. So yeah, she is obviously... Um, wife of Will and Will basically has been doing like the podcast rounds recently because his book the most recent one The Status Games is um, out in America in September this month so the book is essentially all about social psychology and the idea that our desire for status like Mm. underpins all of our ambitions so the blurb if you Mm. like is what drives our political and moral beliefs what makes us like some things and dislike others what shapes how we behave and misbehave in groups what makes you you and it basically like digs into this idea that we are all like universally and inherently like obsessed with status um his thesis is that everyone is playing a status game sometimes multiple status games and if you're not aware of that you're not under- aware of like why you do what you do and it's on the level of the individual but it's also on the level of like you know it goes from the individual to a football team to a nation like we're all employed in these like games um which are essentially about as like competing for like better positions within social hierarchies mm. so it goes all the way back to like our old selves if you know what i mean um so he says in a very good guardian piece which i recommend and we'll link in the show notes if you want to like get a little taster before you read the book um he says that we do that basically because um it's a solution our species has come up with to like secure our own survival and reproduction so as a tribal animal our survival has always depended on us being accepted into a supportive community and but once we're inside like any group we're really content to flop around on its lower rungs we're driven to rise within it back in the stone age increased status meant access to better mates more food greater safety for ourselves and our offspring um so the more status we earn the greater our capacity to like thrive and continue to produce um children so we are driven to seek connection and rank and to be accepted into groups and win status within them that's like the game of human life and we are all programmed to be like that now and so everything we do is about battling for status and it doesn't have to be status in the conventional sense of like oh you want to um earn loads of money or like whatever it is like he says like it's dependent on your like social circles so like the person who um wants to turn up at the school gates with like the old beat down car even though they earn like a good salary and they talk about how much they uh, make vegan lunches for their kids or whatever they're jostling for so for status within that kind of like eco warrior world right Do you know i mean so he's yeah, saying yeah. like no yes we might not all be playing the same status game but we're all engaged in some type. So like they use fashion brands as quite an interesting example in that um, like if you think about what status like a fashion brand conveys, actually the bigger the logo, like the cheaper the item usually, like the very logoed stuff is actually for like uh, 
traditionally people that don't have as much money maybe the working classes or whatever to spend on those items to like show off because they're like yeah look at me I've got Louis Vuitton whereas actually if you go for like the real big bucks brands say like Hermes like Hermes has like a tiny logo on its bag like logos are like basically not even visible because the status symbol is the bag itself and people that know what that bag is know what that bag is so you're signaling to them and they're the only people that matter to you because you're playing in the game with them Um, so it's just like a really really interesting way of thinking about people he kind of talks about how there's like um two like prestige games that we all play to acquire status so there's like success games and virtue games so as i say like success games are about having a fast car winning a promotion and the more complicated virtue games which is really interesting in terms of social media especially now oh shit sorry about that guys um it's basically that people like compete for prestige through demonstrations of moral goodness so they're like showing that they're not motivated by a desire for status but their superior goodness um, but actually, obviously, they are still playing the same status game, just in a different way. So people that, like, strive to, like, be the best person are still, like, involved in this quite um, almost primitive, like, kind of selfish. So do you think he's actually got his idea from the book from, like, the, like, moral wars on Twitter and the status that people have on I'm sure, Twitter? I wouldn't be surprised if yeah. that's, like, part of what, like, influenced it. Like you say, on all these different camps and, like, what infers that you are, like, at the top of, like, one particular camp and... Um, like what's interesting about his findings as well though is that he basically like they ask like does owning a big house and supporting the correct social causes not just make you feel good about yourself but actually make you healthier and live longer the answer is yes because we are such like tribal beings basically he argues that like uh, the higher up in the like status echelons you are uh, the healthier you're literally going to be and he cites this study that I think was of civil servants and it looked at their different like positionings and then it was obviously over a long period of time and then their overall health and weirdly like and it's not about money or access people in higher social positions literally live longer like there's something obviously so inbuilt into like our DNA that comes from like prehistoric times where like which I guess at that time, as I said before, like if you were the top of the ladder in the prehistoric times, like you're going to have the best place to sleep. You're going to be um, contributing to your group in a way that is like meaningful to everyone. You're going to, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it is literally... So it's not linked to just the fact that obviously the more money you have, the more high quality food you're going to have. Yeah, yeah, like... yeah. It's like actually there's something in our brains. It might be to do with like neuroplasticity and the way that um, our brains change based on our surroundings and our like social circumstances. And obviously... Um, being accepted in the social group is like an essential part of survival. Like back in the day, if the group kicked you out, you were going to die, like 100%. So like we are deeply conditioned to be accepted and to be liked. I, I mean, to be fair, I think I do actually relate to that because I think as a journalist, where status is so tied up to um, like public um, image, like how many Twitter followers you have, you know, like how many side hustles you have, like what projects that you can boast about on your social media. Like there is, being a journalist is such a like... It's like an announcement culture. It's an announcement which culture. Which actually I think I borrowed that term from Grace Beverly. I think she actually came up with that. But oh, like, is it? I yeah, think I she says it like from... it's the problem with like millennials and Gen Zs is that it's like people are more concerned with like making the announcement than like doing the actual work. Yes, what's so annoys yeah. me on Twitter is like super, Some personal ex- super exciting announcement that to share next week. So I just share it when it's out then why are you like teasing the fact that you've got this super exciting announcement well i actually thought a lot when i was reading of this of your newsletter sorry to always plug your newsletter don't hate me but it was so relevant um ellie's again newsletter if you don't read it ellie wrote a really really interesting piece about um our obsession with stats and quantifying your self-worth through statistics be that 
literally in your work like Ellie says as a journalist it's very easy to think like oh well, a piece or a podcast episode or whatever is, is successful if it hits x thousands of number of people but equally even in your personal life it's like oh I've watched three new episodes of something I've done two gym workouts like let me quantify my whole weekend in numbers rather than emotions I think it it came to me one weekend recently where I was thinking about whether I'd had a successful weekend and instead of talking about like personal connections that I'd had and emotional moments and like moving conversations I'd had with friends I was thinking about what I had achieved in term like quantifiably mm. like as you say like how many episodes I'd watched because that is productive for me as a journalist how many hours I'd done in the gym how many hours I'd slept how much screen time I'd managed to reduce how many drinks I'd had because I'm always trying to cut down my alcohol and instead I was just like completely like forgetting all these like amazing moments I'd had with friends or my boyfriend or my family or Mm. even like when I'm watching said episodes like what are the most moving moments or most interesting or funny moments from that film or that episode why am I just thinking in terms of like how it's how many yeah or like why it's useful to me in my job like I think this is the issue as well as working in culture journalism as you'll have as well is the line between entertainment and work is so blurred that everything you do in terms of entertainment can be productive yeah and anything could be work and people say that a lot even just generally with the whole like switched on um culture that we have now that like anytime you're even scrolling through instagram you could be looking at like article ideas what competitors are doing like you're constantly working even when you're not working and so you're never giving your brain a break yeah the whole idea of being your own personal brand is literally a product to market and people always say to you like twitter is your shop front like that's what they say as a journalist And it's so easy in theory. I mean, as you guys will know, we literally only set up the straight up Instagram like two seconds ago because we were so resistant to doing it. And then we were like, no, it just needs it. Because our entire professional lives are kind of caught up with this idea of having a personal brand it becomes like a deeply you become deeply resentful about it it's like that whole idea that like as soon as you're incentivized like with money to do anything that you enjoy you don't want to do it anymore so it's that study where people played i'm sorry i never know the actual sources but um they have literally like ascertained this by doing things like um paying giving people a game that they really enjoy they play it they have so much fun they keep wanting to go and go and like do the levels and then when you add money they don't want to play anymore like it's just a really weird thing that we just have as humans. Unless it's Squid Game, in which case money's the only reason why you're yes. playing it. Like, yeah, when we get paid for something that we intrinsically think is fun or passion project, it makes it less fun. So, finally, tell me about your book, Sam my- Knight, Yay or Nay? Sam Knight, big, big yay. He's one of my favourite writers. He's a big, um, very well-known writer at The New Yorker. He's, He's a, a long read writer. guy, right? Because yes. can I just say, as a very quick tangent, um, I feel that Sam Knight has really been, like, in my like ether the last few weeks um because he's the one that wrote the big piece about the queen dying london bridges down or whatever so i already knew everything that was going to happen when the queen died because i read his piece in 2017 yes he wrote the definitive piece on what happens when the queen yeah. dies and it, i looked at it actually when she did die and like matched up everything i was like oh my god it's literally bang on yeah i was with a civil servant when i was on my holiday and she had read it and she was like he has been briefed to a t like he got everything right um he also wrote a very good piece on how the sandwich consumed britain I've had excellent pieces of that piece, actually. It's like cited as like the bastion of journalism, isn't it? Yes, along with Frank Sinatra had a cold. Yes. Anyway, so then I realised that he had a book out called The Premonitions Bureau. So I immediately bought it. The Premonitions Bureau is basically a non-fiction book that looks at... Um, when premonitions essentially like took hold of psychiatry in the 50s and 60s, there was a psychiatrist 
called um, John Barker, who was very much like on the radical like fringes of psychiatry. He was a psychiatrist that felt that like mental asylums in Britain were like urgently in need of rehauling and felt that it was really awful the way that they basically just like kept um, patients as prisoners and didn't try and like help them with medication stuff. Um, so he was like kind of a great character in that sense, trying to overhaul mental asylums, but also quite like suspicious in that he like performed lobotomies on like patients that had Munchausen's and it didn't go well. And you know, he was quite like experimental. That in... kind of reminds me of when we watched like the whole season of Miss Ratchet when we were at Soho Farmhouse <gasps> that time. Anyway, so John Barker basically went down, a young psychiatrist went down to the, to Aberfan, which is, as many people who have watched The Crown will know, was the horrible, horrible mining disaster um, of 1966 when 144 people died, most of them children, because a, I think you'd call it a colliery, a colliery spoil collapsed, like this enormous, like, coal slump collapsed on a primary school (gasps) and, like, killed, like, Oh I think a hundred over a hundred children and some other and forty four adults. And um and he went up there to like talk to witnesses and survivors and quite a few of the children who had survived had drawn almost like premonitionary drawings of the disaster. Um and he felt like there was like something going on here. So he basically spoke to his friend, who was a science editor of the Evening Standard to put a call out, like a nationwide call out for anyone who had had a premonition of Aberfan uh, to write into the newspaper and they would then publish their findings. So um, this eventually led to the Premonitions Bureau, which was the first like desk of its kind at a national newspaper. So a Premonitions Bureau literally existed in the Evening Standard. That's wild. Where they would collate like premonitions from the public. I think they got up to like 500 um during the 20 years that it was operational and um a lot of them were from these two individuals kathleen middleton and um mr hencher what was in they they submitted all their own permissions yeah so they were the ones that that, kathleen middleton was a piano and dance teacher mr hencher i can't remember his first name was um worked in the in the post office and both of them um contributed the most premonitions uh and which the ones which were most um accurate most accurate all specifically about this one disaster so no or like they have other premonitions they had their psychics yeah they had other premonitions kathleen middleton accurately predicted um a plane crash i know accurately predicted a uh big train crash in charing cross um mr hencher accurately predicted a big plane crash um, they both predicted the psychiatrist John Barker's death and he Weird. did eventually die. He died with like two memos from each of them saying he was about to die. Like, what did he die of? Do you know? I think it was like a brain hemorrhage. Oh my God. So it's like one of these freak unpredictable things as well. Yeah. And um, he also published a book called Scared to Death where he was also sure that people who had a premonition of their own death would actually kill them. Like, that would be enough to it would be like self-serving basically yeah, it would and be... exactly and he spoke to lots of patients 
who were like so sure that they were about to die and then they would literally drop dead with no other medical explanation. Well, there is that whole school of thought my brother was telling me about this the other day of like, um, if you speak something, it gives it seven times more power. So you might have a thought in your head. Again, this is obviously within like yeah. alternative circles. But um, if you say something out loud, it makes it seven times more likely to become true than if you just let that thought be like an irrational well, thought Well, even if head. it was cancer. So yeah, I guess. like And like by that principle, he's like, don't say these things out loud. So you know how often I have like irrational health fears? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying now to really practice like not saying them out loud because I feel oh God, like I find that really scary. Yeah, I think I always say bad thoughts out loud. Yeah, well, just try not to. Guess what what if I? I, mean, I anti- what if I like revoke them? I mean, there was the slight irony. This might sound really, um, really like um, callous of me. So again, I'm very sorry. I need to check the name of the guy because obviously he's like a very well respected person in like wellness circles. But he passed away himself. The guy who push this um idea actually passed away from cancer like quite young so you know what i mean it's one of those kind of ones where you're like oh well you've clearly never spoken any negative words in your life and you did not live until you were 80 or you know what i mean yeah so yeah, I yeah i don't know god it's um, fascinating though it really is for people who are interested in psychiatry and also who are just really interested in like a quite gripping book about quite a fascinating like selection of characters like it's a human interest story so is it all based around that 60s like tale or does he bring it into the modern day no no it's all based it basically follows the lives of john barker um, the the science editor, Mr. Fairley, who worked at the Evening Standard, who ran the Premonitions Bureau, the, the Miss Middleton and Mr. Hensher, who both had the most premonitions, and his and and Miss and the psychiatrist kind of obsession with them to the point where they they were like, your obsession with our premonitions is damaging our mental health. Oh really? He was using them as kind of lab rats for his, you oh. know. So it, and and so the whole thing is one of these very. But it's tied exactly, but it's tied to quite an interesting point in like psychiatry where there is this massive like nationwide overhaul of mental asylums. So and it, what's Sam Knight's like? vibe is he does he seem like he believes in premonitions no it's it's as you would imagine so it's 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 come from a new yorker story so he got the idea for the book from writing a new yorker story about it and it's exactly how you would imagine a new yorker story to be completely objective he's just following the story exactly um but i would love to i'm interviewing him i'm interviewing him actually for my newsletter oh my god are so you ideal yeah so i will yeah can you ask those questions i will ask make Abby. sure you do get, get exactly. a nice chunky segment i will i got a chunky what segment what he feels about premonitions yes so what do you feel about premonitions well as i say i mean kind of links back to what we even mentioned before i think like neuroplasticity is obviously very real that's like an undoubtable thing which is that like our brains change constantly based on the thoughts that we have um i always have thought a really useful um like visual analogy for this is that if you think of our brains like a snowy mountain the more you go down the same tracks the more you've made those paths so the more your brain is then tempted to go down those paths because you've created that pathway in the first place um i think that's so relevant to mine and yours is health ocd yes i think because obviously you're gonna start to feel phantom pains or lumps or whatever once you've already essentially as you say thought about it more and then once you actually and it's like somatic and then you can feel things that weren't there and whatever yeah and the brain is like bloody powerful like we know that do you know what I mean like I think um I think I don't know I guess there's a lot that we don't know about the world without sounding like such a mystic but I definitely think it could be real but as you say I think that the obsession of certain like doctors or scientists whatever can then like manipulate that as well so true but there is if you're interested in like the concept of time as well um, there are some there's quite a lot of philosophy that's brought up in the book about like what time frames we're on for instance 
John Barker, the psychiatrist, felt that maybe there was something in the fact that yes, there's our present, but there might also be an unconscious present which runs to a different time scale. And some people are able to tune into that unconscious present a bit like you can with like radio waves. Oh God, okay. And that's why they're seeing stuff in the future. And like, as Amber said last week, she believes that she's a bit psychic. Like she oh, was yeah. like, I'm definitely a bit psychic. Like all my friends say that. Like, do you know what I mean? Like some people are quite good at sensing the future. My great grandmother on my dad's side thought she had second sight. Interesting. Yeah. But I think but was quite uncomfortable with it. Didn't want she it. She didn't want it. It was yeah. like, can I not have these like visions? Yeah. And I mean, now that I'm actually like saying this out loud again, it was probably like some dodgy like YouTube um, documentary. But I remember watching all that stuff, like all the 9-11 conspiracy stuff, like, you know, 10 years ago, um, the zeitgeist kind of stuff that was about that guy. There was definitely some guy that had like all these like premonitions about 9-11 and he's... Yeah. Seen, I don't know. Well, the issue with these premonitions, right, is that often they are people will re- will say that they've had the premonition after the d- disaster after has the event. Happened. So then it's like, well, and we all, re- that, I think that's a really interesting thing about memory anyway. Yeah. It's like the most weird thing about human nature. And I like really dug into this with my um, master's about Salman Rushdie because his book Midnight Children is like all about this. It's like memory is actually not um, reliable no, at all. Like at each all. of us all remember things differently. And anyone that's written a memoir says that. You go back and you ask friends about like a certain account of something and they remember it in a completely different way to you. And we think that our memories are objective like facts, like snapshots of history and they're not. Like our brain has actually added those of like random other crap to them. And a bit of colour, a bit of this, like they're not. I totally noticed it happened? recently when I was telling someone about how much I hated my year abroad in Paris. And I recently went to read my old diary and there are huge amounts of entries where I'm having the best time. You're actually having a great time. And I've like rewritten this narrative. Right? In your head like, that whole thing was shit. Depressed and like I was smoking, I was like became addicted to smoking and was drinking on my own, which I did do, but I also had some great moments and I have completely- Yeah, and I, I was really like shook up reading my diary entries because I was like, that is not the reality that I had in my head yeah, 10 years on. interesting. But I think to be fair, the reason why John Barker wanted to collect these premonitions is because he felt that if you could collect them in advance you then you can stop have... a disaster from happening oh oh i see he literally wanted to use it as like a he li- premeditative tool yes. rather than an insight into like human psychiatry he felt yes he felt that if you could collect enough premonitions then eventually you might get 10 on the same that would be the same and so therefore you like make sure that things are in place for that thing to not happen Interesting. but then but then also like you'll never know if it's accurate unless a disaster happens so like yeah it's very it's i think it's you can't win. <laughs> I have like the nerdiest and lamest thing that I could bring up in oh, relevance to it. It's back to my uh, my Harry Potter love, which oh, obviously on. we've already discussed alongside H. Um, it's very, I'm saying this because we actually recently finally finished the last book, the audio book, Stephen Fry, just amazing. It's like the best sleep aid in the world. Highly recommend. And um, we finished The Deathly Hallows, which obviously the films I've watched more recently, but I haven't read the book since I was about 14 or however old I was yeah. when it came out, 16, whatever. And um there's so much depth there and like that's like the you know how there's like the prophecy that Harry is going to be like the one to match Voldemort and it's like neither can live while the other survives and stuff and Dumbledore's whole explanation for the prophecy is that the prophecy in itself isn't necessarily true but because Voldemort heard it and acted on it that made it true so it's like basically saying that our actions give as much like um reality to something like our actions are what give a prophecy a prophecy um, like meat do you know what I mean so he's like that prophecy in and of itself if no one ever heard it no I'm not saying that you would be the boy who lived that yeah. Voldemort would have chosen and that would have had this whole like battle for like the future of the wizarding world it's actually because Voldemort heard it and chose to act on it that he made Harry the chosen one 
Interesting. Just through the yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Which I feel is definitely some kind of reflection on this whole thing. God, I'd love to time. have the time to reread that. Again, just do something for pleasure. Yeah, and it was, it's been so, like, literally, because usually we listen to it at night going to sleep, whereas it's obviously got so, like, fast paced and juicy that we were like, we literally have to listen to this properly. So we've been that lame couple that, like, literally sat there in the airport with, like, one AirPod in, listening to Harry Potter, like, oh, age 31. Oh, no, that's really cute. Um, God, you might have to listen to it in the mornings rather than the evening. Yeah, well, we finished it and we were like bereft because we're like, well, how do we do now? No, no, you sort of start again. We have started it again. Oh, we're there on we book go. One. Yeah, that's how tragic we are. God, well, to make you sound super uncool, <laughs> Isra and I in the mornings play our James Blake vinyl. Oh, that's what I've started nice. doing. I think that's, a, that's not super uncool. I think that's like quite a nice. No, no, start sorry. Today. I meant to say it's quite cool. Yes. Oh, sorry, right. I, I thought say... you were trying to say that that was like an example of uncoolness. No. I'm like listening to James Blake on vinyl in the morning. No, it? I wanted to make you feel even more uncool right, by saying yeah. my Sunday morning ritual is now listening to James Blake or such like. Um, because we've decided that we can often be quite negative in the morning. So oh. me and my boyfriend will not, will, well, we've literally done this once. <laughs> As of last weekend, we didn't look at our phones between 8 and 10 a.m. and we just so lay in bed good. and listened to vinyl and That's then lovely. we walked to Battersea Park and bought the Sunday Times oh. and we read it with a coffee oh my god that is like the most wholesome and cute and, and like yes oh that is nice I feel like maybe that was some post newsletter reflection it coming was. in there as well and then my boyfriend cooked both brunch and dinner what did he make he made sausage mm. well he made a fry up for brunch yeah. and then he made an amazing roast with roast potatoes in the air fryer Ooh, i bet you they were crispy they were so crispy but with literally just a drop of oil oh i need to get on an air fryer i think you finally need to get an air I'm, fryer. I'm, I'm, you were originally saying that it was the same as a hot oven and it wasn't good and my boyfriend and i now. have had so many fights about <laughs> the air fryer but i have come out my only issue and this is what we have often fights about is that when i try an oven cook a lemon sole it's too long for the air fryer tray Oh, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to have to break it. No. I mean, you, I, like, you like a piece of lemon sole, don't you? It's not, it's not that meaty, I find. That's the issue. No. It's a bit of one of those. And also, there aren't, enough, there aren't any trays. So I might need to get an air fryer with trays so you can do multi-level frying. Well, air fryer browns, if you're listening to this, <laughs> come sponsor us. Quite like an air fryer. I'm going to finish on one very quick point for anyone who loves the woo-woo stuff as much as we do, because I really wanted to as tell you about as this. As much as you do. As much as I do. But I know you're interested in this, and I purposely haven't told you before, which is that I listened to Kendall Jenner's interview with <gasps> Jay Shetty recently. If anyone doesn't know, Jay Shetty is this like British guy who was a monk who now lives in LA, and he's like... His podcast is literally on purpose. It's like the number so one like health Is he no longer celibate? No, he has a wife. He has a oh. very gorgeous wife who wow. weirdly enough looks like quite a lot like him. She's also English. And so they're this like couple that live in LA and they're like beautiful. They have like... Do you think it's going to come out that they're like part of a cult? No, I don't. Because they are literally like pure like wholesome goodness. Um, but it, what is quite funny about him is that he's like this former monk that's like very into like obviously like spiritualism and all of that and then like on his podcast it will like be a quick pause it's like oh let me just tell you about Squarespace if you want to uh, <laughs> like it's slightly jarring in that sense and he's also got like a thousand businesses when you're like oh that's funny but they're like all like on brand they're like for you know drinks that have like ashwagandha in them and that kind of thing he has like a tea brand anyway his interview with Kendall Jenner is massive because obviously Kendall Jenner doesn't do that many interviews and she's actually this like spiritual person who's into like sound baths and she's talked about having anxiety before but people don't see that side of her that much because she obviously doesn't really talk about it on like I don't know the Kardashians whatever 
she said that she does exactly what Amber Rose told us last week, which is that... Um, Amber Rose Gill. Amber Rose Gill, yeah. Not the Amber Rose, very different woman. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that uh, <laughs> confusion there. Yeah, Amber Rose Gill basically showed Ellie and I at the end of the interview last week, um, for those who stuck with us till the end, will remember, uh, this super cute little video of herself with a little picture of her as a child because it was like this TikTok trend that was like thinking about how your like, like current self thinks of your like past self and all of that self-love stuff. And yeah, Kendall was saying how she actually did the same thing, like coincidentally having spoken to her therapist about it just before the TikTok trend started, but that she's been like loving the TikTok trend. She has a picture of herself as like a four-year-old stuck on her bathroom mirror. Just like Brian Cox. Yeah, so anytime you get tempted, every morning you see it, every evening you see it, and you have to, obviously when you, gonna say negative things to yourself or about yourself you remind you like remind yourself that that's about like that kid and apparently you're so much less likely to do it because you feel like love and compassion towards that child in a way that you can't towards your adult self um that's so true and actually when my friend who i think i've talked about before was sectioned one of the things she would constantly say to herself is like i'm doing it for like the little version. the little version of me Aww. like i'm doing it for her and she'd often post that like, i'm doing it with with baby picture of her and be like i'm doing it for her that is literally so it cute. was really cute and she's much much better now so Apparently, it's a very good tool. Yeah. So I'm going to try that. I it sadly my Were original. Were you battered as a child? Um, no, I was quite cute actually. Not Were, you? Were you cute? I don't think I've ever I... seen a childhood picture of you actually, which is really weird. So we must do that. Wait, I'm actually going to show you a childhood picture because it is. I would just like to know your reaction. Um, I was going to say as well. I'm hoping that the sticking the picture of yourself in the bathroom mirror will work better than. Do you remember when I tried to give you and your boyfriend the tip when we all had dinner of like, oh, I had it from Mel Robbins that you should um, high five yourself in the mirror every morning. And oh we all tried yes. it for like one day, and, then and, just... and I don't think I ever tried it. You know, your boyfriend did say that he did try it. He was like, "This is a picture of me." Oh my god, you were so cute. Oh, you literally look like an ancient Uncle Fester. Oh my God, you look like a really cute little Uncle Fester. But all babies are like fat and bald, so. Oh, that is cute. No, it's not. That is so cute. You know, you're actually quite kind. I think you no, find I think all that is babies. super cute. Oh my God, look at your little outfit. That is literally so cute. Well, I don't oh, know. Oh, let me see that one. That one's quite oh, cute. Oh, look yeah. at those little eyes. Yeah, well, that one's cute because you can't see my oh, massive come fat on, face. No. I spoke to my mum about it and she said it was quite a shock when she saw me because I was so large. Oh, you're so sweet. That's kind. But You've actually been much nicer about me than my own mother. <laughs> well, probably because you were barbing with um, with these and also she is French. No, and also I did like wound her vagina. They had to, I had my elbow around my oh, neck. Okay, so yeah, so probably her feeling was probably vacuum me out, you know. Oh yeah, I'm a forceps baby as well. Actually, like baby. salad service. One of my friend. No, I had a vacuum. Oh, gosh, why do we have all these weird yeah things? <laughs> but one of my anyway. friend who had the forceps gets like a raised lump. She says really, and has like a mark from it. Gosh, I should check out my profile and see well to be fair I've never noticed it on her but that's what she says I do feel like I have quite a long forehead but I don't know if I can blame that on forceps no you've got a good forehead the shape of my head you've actually got like one of those like model oh, foreheads I I, it's a bit of a high forehead that's no because your hairline hair no because you've got a hairline that goes like all the way around it whereas mine no goes... let's not get into <laughs> hairlines <laughs> actually let's not let's leave it at that okay, guys let's sign out on my widow's peak as always please do go and follow us on our instagram straight up pod and let us know what you like what you don't like what you might not want to hear and do leave a review if you can we'd love that thank you so much bye